in the first uh, half of the chapter, um, John, uh, chapter four, sorry, John gave this depiction of what the throne room looks like. Uh, he describes the throne room itself, and he attempts to describe the one on the throne himself. But then in the second half of the chapter, uh, John describes what is happening in the throne room, the, the worship of the one that sits on the throne. So it goes from what he's seen to what, he, uh, to, to what is actually happening on the throne. The, um, the worship of the one, uh, sorry, the, the hymns of the 24 elders and the four creatures that surround the throne are, are, are strong in that last part of the chapter. So the first half of the chapter is really about what John sees, whereas the second half is kind of what he hears. And I don't know if you remember, I mentioned before, the idea of John seeing something and hearing something is found in the book of Revelation all the way through. Sometimes what he hears and what he sees are not the same thing, and quite often that's the case. If you just have your Bibles and you flick through that book of Revelation, you'll see things like this. It's things like, after this I looked, or then I saw, and after this I heard. And other phrases like that, the beginning of chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 10, all start with phrases like that, and they're found throughout as well. And the fact that these phrases appear so often obviously suggests that we need to take them seriously, and that there's something that we need to pay attention to here. And as we go into chapter 5, this idea of John seeing and hearing, and often the juxtaposition between those two things, is really important. As we look through this chapter, keep your eyes open for the things that he sees and the things that he hears. You know, nowadays, most of our, uh, the posts that we get for our letterbox, uh, we don't get as much as we used to, do we? A lot of it now is um, are online, a lot of emails instead. Um, and it seems that either the, the post I get through the door is either junk mail or it's really important mail. Um, and of those important letters, you sometimes receive an envelope that says something like this, private to be opened by the addressee only. And when you see a letter like that, you know it's probably quite important, don't you? You don't just chuck it straight in the bin. You know, if you're awaiting some important news, you might approach that letter with a bit of excitement or trepidation about what it says inside. Is it good news or not? It could be the results of a medical test. It could be a job offer or a decline. It could be exam grades. <coughs> Excuse me. When you receive this kind of letter, you might approach it with a little bit of hesitation. Do I want to open it and know what it says inside or not? Now imagine you have a letter that comes through your door which says in bold letters on the envelope, to be opened by the one who deserves to do so. That would be a bit more intriguing, wouldn't it? With a letter that says to the addressee only, you know who that person is, don't you? It says it quite clearly printed on the envelope. But how do you know if you're deserving of opening a letter? How would you know if you are qualified to the task of opening such a letter? Now, if a letter came through your door like that, you would surely start considering what makes you worthy, what makes you deserving of something. Now, we live in a world that tries to convince us that we are worthy or deserving. There's a famous advert for a hair product that ends its adverts with the catchphrase, because you're worth it. But as you search your conscience with this letter in front of you, I'm sure that you'd start to stumble across all sorts of things that would plant seeds of doubt in your mind about whether you were deserving enough, worthy enough, to be the one that opened that letter. All sorts of things that might disqualify you from such a task. And this is a situation we find at the start of this next scene in the throne room in chapter 5. Excuse me.
As John continues his description of the vision, his attention is turned from the 24 elders and the four creatures who are praising God back into the centrepiece of the throne room, he who sits on the throne, God himself. If you notice straight away, we read that John saw, so there's a couple of saws here, I saw a scroll in the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, he saw a mighty angel. This is how chapter 5 starts, with this twofold explanation of what John saw. But then if you scroll to the latter part of the chapter, in verses 11 and 13, we have a twofold explanation of what John heard. Instead, I heard around the throne, and I heard every creature. So going back to that point I made a moment ago, this whole chapter is encased in this idea of hearing and seeing, seeing and hearing. So what is it that John first sees? Verse 1 says that he saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Most of our translations state that the scroll was in his right hand, but the original Greek means more that it was on his right hand. So in other words, God is holding out on an open hand this this scroll, offering it to whoever is able to take it. But what is this scroll and why is it important and and what's with the seven seals? Well, again, we have to remember our Old Testament here. Look back in your Bibles to Ezekiel 2, verses 9 to 10, and we find that Ezekiel was also offered a similar scroll. Just notice how similar their visions are. It says this, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So you notice the scroll there isn't sealed. It is opened in front of him. But then look forward into the book of Daniel in chapter 12 and verse 4. And we see the same idea of the scroll being sealed shut. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Both Ezekiel and Daniel were given limited insight into God's plans. But for Ezekiel, it was for the people of Israel living in exile and God's promise to restore them. Whilst Daniel was allowed this limited insight into what he was given, he was told to seal it up for the time at the end. And he says himself that he has heard, but he has not understood these things. Fast forward to Revelation, and we find the time of the end that Daniel talks about. And here, uh, sorry, and there, sorry, and there, Big pardon. There needs to be found one who is able to open the seals and read what is contained within. For Daniel, the contents of God's plans were to remain a secret. For John, they were to be revealed. But what is contained inside the scroll? Well, a lot, it seems. It says that the scroll was written within and on the back. Now, normally a scroll would only ever be written on one side. Um, the the fibres of the papyrus that the scroll is made of, it would lay in horizontal lines on on one side in particular, which would make it easier to write on because you would follow those lines. Scrolls were often more than 10 metres long, so they weren't small things. And so it was rare that you'd ever run out of room and need to write on the flip side of it. Even, this is a a photocopy or a a photo of the um, book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah that was found in the Dead Sea in Qumran. Uh, There's only a section of it. But even this whole book, which is 66 chapters long, is written only on one side of the scroll. However, there were Jewish and Roman legal documents where scrolls were written on both sides. 
And these were private contracts um, that were sealed and kept private from the public. Now, I'm sure you've seen a seal on a scroll before, but they were made of wax or sometimes clay, and they were blobs placed where the scroll ended. Um, and they were often so, uh, sealed with a, a signet ring, uh, and a unique signet ring, to make sure that it wasn't tampered with. And the purpose of this, the seal on these documents was to keep its contents secret until the time that, um, of the fulfilment of that agreement. The scroll that John sees so closely resembles these Jewish and Roman contract deeds that we are surely to understand the scroll that God holds in the same sort of light. Its contents contains the plans and purposes for his redemption of creation. And those plans that have been written since the beginning of creation, before the beginning of creation, are a secret until one can be found who is worthy to open the seven seals and reveal its contents. Again, the number seven is used here to signify completeness. The scroll is completely sealed, it's unreadable, except by the proper authority, the one who is qualified to do so. And herein lies the problem. The next thing that John sees is a mighty or a strong angel who calls forth this question or, or challenge. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who is there that is deserving enough worthy enough to step forward up to the throne of Almighty God, take the scroll from his hand, open these seals, and read and reveal what God's purposes and intentions are for the world. God's master plan to resolve the age-old problem of the trashing and the spoiling of his beautiful creation. Well, the answer comes in the next verse. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Because in verse 4 it tells us that no one was found worthy. John clearly understands the problem and is fully aware that the sinfulness of mankind makes us all undeserving, all unworthy to play this major part in God's redemptive plan. But hold on, that surely poses a problem, doesn't it? Didn't God commit to work with his creation through obedient mankind right back at the beginning? Surely Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrates that this was how the world was designed to work. God placed humans in a position of stewardship over the rest of creation. They were to be God's hands and feet within his creation. So for God to turn around and say, well, humans have failed, so I'm going to have to find another way, would surely mean that his plans have failed. It would unmake the very structure of his original creation. Well, perhaps then the answer is to be found in Israel. Israel is called to be God's true humanity, to put God's rescue plan into operation. You know, we see that right back at the calling of Abraham. But here we find a second problem. Israel has failed too. It too has let God down. So does God have to say, well, they've let me down as well, so I'm just going to have to chop that bit out of my plan as well? If so, it surely looks like God has messed up, doesn't it? like he's fumbling around in the dark with different ideas on how to make things right, none of which have worked so far. Since human sin means that his creation is spoiled and is in need of a rescue plan, he has called one human family to be the means by which that rescue will be put into effect. In other words, God is determined to run the world through humans and to rescue the world through one human family, Israel, but both of which have let him down. So what will he do now? There is no one worthy to open the scroll. Has it all gone wrong? Has God just made a mess of things? 
And you can understand why John began to weep loudly in verse 4. And to be honest, we could feel like joining him when we think about the state of humanity, couldn't we? Just look at your news reports at the moment. When we look at the way that we as humans constantly fail him and navigate away from his original purpose for us and for his creation, we can clearly see that there are none that are worthy to open the scroll to see how God is going to make things right. But hold on, let's cheat a little bit. If we skip forward to Revelation 7.17 or 21 verse 4, what does it say? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no mourning nor crying. His plan is already in place. Just look at verse 5. Weep no more, comforts one of the elders to John in his distress. Behold the Lion of Judah, the Root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here is the one that can do it. And before we even look, we know who it is, don't we? Humanity has failed. Well, here is the one that is truly human. Israel has failed. Well, here is the one that is truly an Israelite. Here is the Messiah. These terms, Lion of Judah and Root of David, would have been very clear to the first readers in the first century of this book of Revelation. The lion features frequently in the Old Testament as a symbol of power and of aggression. The Lion of Judah stems from Genesis 49, verses 9 to 12, where Judah is a fierce lion that will one day rule over the nations. In another Jewish writing found in the Apocrypha, in the book of 2 Edras 11 and 12, the Messiah is described as a lion that attacks the eagle of the Roman Empire. The allusion to the Messiah would have been unmistakable to these early believers. The same with the root of David, which echoes another messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 11.10. There we see that the foretold Messiah is the root of Jesse, who is David's father, and he would draw the nations together and also gather God's people back from exile to their homeland. The Messiah, it was thought, would fight and win the decisive battle against the last great enemy of God's people and so liberate them once and for all. Well, says the elder to John, he has done it. Here he is. What were all the seven churches of uh, chapters 2 and 3 called to do? What was the main thread that ran through all of those letters? They were to conquer. In every one of those letters, it says, to the one who conquers. And what does the elder say about the Messiah here? He has conquered. And that makes him worthy to open the scroll, break its seals, and to understand and make known God's purposes to the world. And then we come to one of the most decisive moments in the whole Bible. And we come across one of those key moments where John hears something, but then turns and sees something different. Both are meant to be understood as the same thing, though. You know, back in chapter 1, John heard the loud voice of God like a trumpet, but then he turned and he sees one like a son of man, Jesus. They're one and the same thing. In chapter 7, you'll hear God's people being counted out to 144,000, a precise number, but then he will turn and see an uncountable crowd. Here, he has heard of the Lion of Judah, But what does he see when he turns and looks? A lamb. When he hears, well, sorry, what he hears and then what he sees are radically different, aren't they? A ferocious lion and a lamb that has been slain. A lion is a symbol of power and royalty, whereas a slain lamb 
symbolises gentle vulnerability and death. Complete contrast, but from here on in, the two are fused completely together forever. The conquering victory of the lion is accomplished only through the sacrifice of the lamb, and in no other way. Jesus did not conquer through military might and power, as many in Israel had presumed that the Messiah would do, but by enduring hostility and facing death. Not by violence, but by martyrdom. The lion is a lamb. Significantly, the, lion, the lamb is slain. And again, this wouldn't go unnoticed, particularly by those Jewish Christians. Just as the plagues fell upon Pharaoh and Egypt, and it was only the blood of the slaughtered lamb that protected God's people from that most climactic of plagues, the, first, that the firstborn, so too will plagues fall upon a disobedient world, as we will see in the coming chapters. And it is only the blood of the lamb that will protect God's people from his coming judgments on humanity. As we move further and further into this book, we must keep the story of God's judgment on Egypt in mind as we hear of the plagues and judgments to come on the earth. Remember that the Old Testament is often a precursor for what is to come. The place of the lamb is also important. Translations vary, depending um, uh, on, on your translation um, uh, of the Greek, but... He is either beside the throne of God or he is in the centre of it. Either way, the point is the same. The lamb is found in the centre of the throne room, sharing the same space as the one who is subject of all of the praise of the elders and of the creatures and eventually the whole of creation. As Jesus said himself in chapter 3, verse 21 of Revelation, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The Lamb is clearly Jesus, and the Lamb is worthy to be praised. But the Lamb has these further descriptive elements. It has seven horns and seven eyes. Again, Revelation often has these these weird kind of visuals that we have to kind of grapple with. What are these seven horns and seven eyes? And here, the contrast between strength and weakness is continued. Throughout the scripture, horns are representative of power and honour. So we have this lamb that also has this, this slain lamb, but it also has this symbol of power and honour. 1 Samuel 2 verse 10 associates horns with the king of David's line, whereas Luke 1.69 speaks of the hoped-for salvation with God raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. These seven horns, therefore, represent the per- lamb's perfect power to save, which he has done through the weakness of self-sacrifice. The seven eyes recall again um, Zechariah 3 verse 9 and the seven lamps that we saw in chapter 4. Again, these eyes are the seven spirits of God, the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. These seven spirits of God are sent out into all the earth, it says in verse 6. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 26, that the Spirit is sent by the Son from the Father. Here we have one of the most explicit references to the Trinity. The one on the throne, the Father, the slain Lamb, the Son, and the seven eyes, the Holy Spirit. All functioning together and all at the centre of the worship of the throne room. And then comes the climax of this scene. The Lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. This isn't just some small act, this is huge. That the slain Lamb is worthy to take the scroll means that what was kept secret until now can be made known. 
God's plans for his creation can now be opened and shared with the world. All that follows from here in the chapter is the praise that celebrates this and explains why he is worthy. And all that follows in the rest of Revelation is the result of this climactic moment. The weeping stops and the praise begins. Now until this point, humanity was still very much in the dark. Yes, Jesus had come and lived his perfect life. He had died on the cross. He had risen again. He had told us that he would come again and then he had ascended back to the Father. We had the writings of Paul and Peter and others that gave us some insight about what our future holds. But just think about it. Just think of the impact of this book, of Revelation, of God's revelation to John sometime late in the first century on what we know and hope for about our eternal future. So much of it comes from this revelation. Whilst there is still very, very much that we do not know or understand about everything surrounding Christ's return, about the new heaven and the new earth, What we do know comes very much as a result of this vision. It comes very much as a result of one being found worthy to break those seals, unravel the scroll and reveal God's sovereign plan to the world. You can see why John no longer needs to weep, can't you? And why the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, before the worthy one and sing further hymns of praise. It's a mixed scene that, again, is hard to imagine. They fall down in worship, and yet each one is holding a harp and golden bowls of incense. You know, it's kind of impossible to fall down prostrate whilst playing a harp and holding a golden bowl of incense at the same time. But this imagery is meant to be symbolic. And I guess this is where we get those cartoon-like images of heaven being people playing harps. Um, But the harps are representative. Uh, They represent the priestly function of the Levites. Go back into 1 Chronicles 24 and 25, And you'll see that those priests were given the role of musical worship, often with harps. Harps were the usual accompanying instrument for the singing of psalms, as well as being David's own instrument. The bowls of incense, we are told, are the prayers of the saints. This is an easy point to pass over, and easy to just kind of read through this. But it's a really important part. Until this point, we have all been onlookers on this majestic, almost incomprehensible, heavenly scene. And yet, here, in an almost imperceptible way, we are suddenly a part of the scene. The guy at this book, uh, N.T. Wright, I mentioned a moment ago, he describes it like going to the theatre and experiencing the introduction of a performance. The lights go down, the music slowly and quietly builds. It builds gradually with more and more instruments joining in and the choir adding their voices and building in volume until it all comes to a crescendo. You know you're about to experience a drama like no other. The surprise, though, the audience is part of the show. We are invited to play our part and come on stage. It says, the bowls of the incense are the prayers of the saints. That is the prayers of God's people. That's you and that's me. This small detail reveals that in this heavenly scene, it's tied to our earthly reality. It's not just some little story about something far away. It's tied to what's going on here and now. In the Old Testament, incense signified the sweet-smelling aroma or acceptance of a sacrifice to God. Our humble, often wandering and ordinary prayers here on earth appear as glorious, sweet-smelling incense in heaven. And remember, those elders are representatives of God's people, again, you and me. So the harps and the hymns of praise, 
most likely represent our own songs and hymns of praise. Again, however feeble and possibly out of tune our singing or musicianship might be, when it is directed to the right place, when our hearts are truly worshipping God, it appears as true worship in the heavenly throne room. How incredible is it that we are included in this wonderful scene and that we play a key part in the ongoing throne room of worship God to God. The chapter ends with three hymns of praise. And again, like an orchestra and a choir slowly building to a crescendo, we find that more and more voices are joining in this chorus of praise. The first hymn is sung by the four creatures and 24 elders. And this new song would have shocked early Jewish readers because of the subject of the praise is the Lamb. It is Jesus who is being worshipped. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, is receiving the sort of praise that would normally be directed only to the Father. This first song of praise praises the lamb for what he has achieved because he is the one that is worthy to take and open the scroll. He is the one who is worthy to carry forward and to put into action God's plans to confront and destroy all that stands in the way of God's perfect kingdom. And it is through his blood, through his sacrifice that he has done it. And that sacrifice means that we, who were very much just as much a part of that destructive force and were enemies of God, have now been ransomed, bought from the slave market to be a kingdom and priests. In other words, because of his sacrifice, we who are part of the problem are now part of the solution. We are now part of the rescue plan for creation. That doesn't excite us, there's something seriously wrong. In the second hymn, myriads upon myriads or thousands upon thousands join the chorus of praise. Whilst the chapter began with a double I saw, it ends with a double I heard. Firstly, John hears a growing throng of thousands upon thousands joining in the praise of the, the praise that the creatures and the elders are giving. This song turns from what the Lamb has achieved to what he deserves namely all the honour and glory that creation is capable of giving him. Notice that he alone is worthy to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might. Not the emperor of the Romans, not any pagan god or idol, nor anything else that we, put, that our, we dedicate our finances, our time or anything else to. Christ alone is deserving of not only our worship, but everything else that we possess. And finally, here's a third song, this time sung by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. John cannot be any more comprehensive. He literally means every part of creation. All of it joins the orchestra and choir as it reaches the climax of the performance. And it lifts its thunderous worship to those in the centre of the throne. Whilst the two, first two songs lift praise to the Lamb, here we are shown that the Lamb shares the praise that belongs to the one and only God. Here, praise is equally given to both him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is the world-changing and world-challenging truth at the centre of the Christian faith. Jesus, the Lamb-Lion, the perfect human, the ultimate Israelite, this Jesus shares in the worship that belongs only and uniquely to the one creator God. Whilst elements of this chapter are futuristic, they're looking ahead to a future restoration and recreation of the world. Much of it is present. It's right now. It's a vision of how things are now. 
Our prayers are an acceptable, sweet-smelling incense to God right now. Our true worship is beautiful-sounding music to him right now. Like officials and aides in the Roman emperor's court, we are part of the ongoing and kingdom-building work being done in the throne room of the true emperor, the true king, God himself. As I said before, if that doesn't excite us, there's got to be something wrong. From this point on in Revelation, we'll begin to be shown just what the contents of that scroll are. The seals are broken and God's perfect redemptive plan will begin to be unravelled for us. Pray for us as we try to understand it. This is where it's going to get juicy. But for now, as we draw to a close this part of the vision, this throne room scene, let's be reminded of what these last two chapters have been about, the worship of the one who is on the throne, our triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But let's not miss out a very important detail of our own appearance in the throne room. As the plans for the culmination of God's perfect kingdom are laid out in the coming chapters, let's be reminded that we are to play a part in that kingdom-building process. In our prayers, in our worship, and in our whole lives, we are called to be like representatives of the royal palace, to go out into the world and bring more and more people under the perfect and good rule of our heavenly king. Does that get you excited? <laughs>